Welcome to Season 6 of the Fireman Trainers Podcast, Episode 20, published on January 16th, 2024. We are part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts. In this episode, we'll be talking with Brian C. Smith from Metropolitan Police Self-Defense Institute to talk about certified versus qualified instructors. And help us reach more instructors by giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app and sharing this episode with another instructor. We do this to get information out to instructors, and if instructors are not listening to us, then we obviously can't be helping them. Sit back and relax for another episode. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage offer and their competitive pricing. All certified instructors can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off of your policy by ending promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by the LASR Classic Trainer. I use the LASR Classic system in my classroom because it allows me to teach first-time gun owners proper side alignment, proper drawing from a holster, and trigger control without stepping on the range, saving me time and the student money by not firing rounds downrange. When the student is ready, they know what to do because of the classroom training. LSR Classic is easy to set up and tear down because all you need is a laptop with a webcam to use it. That allows you to set up anywhere you can take your laptop. The application also works with any laser device from laser cartridges you put in your firearm to dedicate laser trainers. LSR is veteran-owned and operated. Find out more information at LASRapp.com and receive a t- special 10% discount by using discount code FTP10 at checkout. We bring this podcast, support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Brian Smith, a law enforcement officer, 46 years. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, Brian, not too many people on podcasts, I'm sure, know who Brian Smith is. You can give us a little bit of what your background is and what you do in law enforcement. All right. I'm a law enforcement officer. I'm on my fourth police department now. I, I did 30 years at uh, Chicago Heights Police Department, which is a south suburb of Chicago. Uh, retired there as a rank of captain. I was there. I was the commander of the Special Operations Unit uh, and work patrol and range master <clears throat> and conducted in-service training. When I retired from there, I took a, 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 a three-year contract position as the police chief with a neighboring town of Glenwood, Illinois. When I left there, I went to uh, work part-time as a police officer, as a patrolman with Stager Police Department. And just working part-time, you know, I get bored easily, so I had to take on another job, you know, a little part, <laughs> two part-time job, you know. And uh, then I uh, took a full-time position with uh, Prairie State College Police Department, and I, I retired from there just recently. But I still work part-time with the Stager Police Department. It is just hard to give up the, the, mm-hmm. the profession. But also, I keep buying stuff too, so I got to I got to keep coming up with some. <laughs> yeah, well, and the one one reason why I bring you on the podcast tonight is you're also a very prolific author, and that you've authored over 200 articles when it comes yeah. to training and placing and such. So that's uh, you know that that's that keeps you busy too. You know, when you can't sleep at night, I'm sure you're sitting there writing writing articles, right? Yes, I do, and I yeah, drive sorry. everywhere. I don't fly, so thing is, when I'm driving, I'm thinking of an article I can write right then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Well, the article that we're going to talk about today was an article that I read on the uh, Leffy uh, 
website, uh, International Associated Law Enforcement Firearm Instructors, and mm-hmm. the link will be in the show notes for those that are driving right now. And you were talking about your article of certification versus qualified instructors. And I thought it was very uh, enlightening from the standpoint of, you know, a lot of the instructors that are out there, um, some of them have been teaching for decades. Some of them have been teaching for months. And there's a good, there's a big distinction between being certified and being qualified. So to begin off, how did you get certified to begin with? I, uh, was teaching private security officers or basic training, which is unarmed training. And also uh, I wanted to join our uh, training cadre for the firearms division for our police department. And so the security company itself paid me to to go to the NRA law enforcement class. When I came back, you know, I thought I knew everything until I got with the the training staff at the police department and come to find out I was just a, a little fish in a big pond. You know, and so I, I learned a lot from them. It was a great uh, team uh, where I learned a lot, but I was being a low man, you know, I was always told to sit down and shut up, you know, <laughs> just what I tell you to do, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can, I can relate to, you know, I've taken plenty of NRA courses, USCCA courses and other courses to where you go in there and you get dumped on a ton of information. And it makes you feel really good when you're able to do the qualification, when you're able to pass the exam or whatever the whole thing comes down to, but you're still the rookie when it comes to whatever, whatever you're doing, because quite frankly, you've got the book knowledge. You don't have, you know, the street knowledge, uh, from that standpoint. And that's where, you know, I highly encourage instructors go out, take as much training as you can, but then also to learn how to apply it appropriately. And when it comes to applying things, Brian, how do you go along and get qualified, you know, from the standpoint of getting that experience? So you're no longer the rookie. You can actually stand up and teach versus being told to, to shut up and sit down. Well, I, I find out if you can humble yourself and your ego and get with some people who's already doing it, already established and training and things like that. And a lot of them, uh, uh, you know, uh, welcome to help. And we do too. Now, since we've been established since 1981, as, as a private training group. And I, and we invite little young instructors, not necessarily young, but new instructors, uh, come and join us, you know, help us with a class or something like that. Give you some ideas. I don't hold back anything, whatever I got, you got. And so we try to give them whatever we can to help them and nurture them along to uh, be good instructors. And so I still go to my, myself. I still attend all the uh, conferences, uh, hook up with, with some other instructors and try to learn a few things. I attend pistol competitions. I want to try to be the best at, at my craft. And thing is, you know, I always heard that that uh, that one term. I saw it in a school one time when I was teaching uh, at a, a, a grammar school. It was a poster on the wall that said, those who dare to teach should never cease to learn. And that resonated with me. And I continue to try to learn because I still have that responsibility to teach. Mm-hmm. How many training courses do you think you've taken over your 46 years in law enforcement? Uh, over 400. Mm-hmm. And if you, t- you, you take a simple number of eight hour for a course, that's over 3,200 hours that you've taken. And I'm sure some of those courses were multi-day, if not, you know, entire week worth of courses. So you're on the North side of uh, 3,200 hours of being behind a desk or behind a gun, at least listening to somebody coach you on how to develop a specific skill. Right. And I took on a part-time job just to, 
to handle that expense of being able to travel every year to go to different classes, go to different conferences and things like that. And this was my quest. Mm-hmm. And at those conferences and such, you're able to network with other uh, people in the industry, but you're also, I find they're very useful because you get to go along and talk to the vendors and see what new products are coming out, new yes. ideas, you know, where, where new ideas are going in the industry because in the last 46 years, there's been some quantum changes that have happened in law enforcement, just like there's been quantum changes when it comes to concealed carry for for the civilian sector. It's not what it used to be five years ago, 10 years ago, or even 30 years ago. A um, right. lot of changes. And if you're not doing something to stay up on all those changes, you're going to be basically a Model T, you know, on the Indy 500, or you're going to be a, you know, a Tyrannosaurus Rex in the middle of, you know, of, you know, the 21st century to where it's not relevant anymore. Right. Your tactics, your, your terminology and all that will reflect on that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you could, one of the things I'd bring up to a lot of people, and, uh, we just did a podcast talking about terms uh, a couple of weeks ago, but, um, when it comes to automatics, when you went through the, through the Academy and automatic was your 1911, you know, single yeah. action, uh, pistol. It was, you know, as automatic. Now we are using more of the you know, ter- proper terminology calling semi-automatic or striker fired, but that's where, you know, 1911 shot 45 ACP. Well, right. ACP means automatic Colt uh, pistol. And that's because, you know, in, when they named it, it automatically loaded the next round. It's not, it wasn't a machine pistol. It was just automatically loading the next one. So you didn't have to go along, cock the hammer in the days of single action revolvers. And, you know, that made it automatic in everybody's minds, but the terminology has changed in those, in the, in the last 40 plus years. And, you know, even terminology in the last 20 years have changed because when I first took my concealed carry class, they were still called automatics at the time. And yes. that was, that's, a, that's been less than 20 years ago. And now we go along and we talk, we talk about them either being semi-automatic or striker fired. Right now, when I, when I got on in 1978, we carried the Smith and Wesson model 59 at that time. And, uh, that's what they still referred to them as automatics at that time. About a, about a year and a half later, we went back to revolvers because we had so many problems. We weren't properly trained with the semi-automatic pistol. And so we went back to revolvers and then, and, uh, I think it was 87, 88. We, we made the complete transition back to the semi-automatic pistol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the old ways of, uh, using, using, using a revolver didn't transfer over a hundred percent. And that's, that's another one of those things to where you, know, you talk about need to go to training, need to go to conferences, little things like that. We've got the semi-automatic pistols now, and we're having a, uh, a, a complete revolution when it comes to red dots on your pistols. Now they're great. They're fun. They, you know, help people out but they don't solve all the problems in the world. And that's where as instructors, you need to realize what additional problems do red dot sites bring? What, what problems do red dots problem solve and then be able to help your student out appropriately so that they're not wasting their time trying to make something work or searching for the dot in the, in the glass while they're trying to make a, make a shot on target. That would be a really bad situation for them to have. Right. And everyone thinks anything new that comes out, they're supposed to have it. Whether they train with it or not, they're just supposed to have it because it's brand new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's all there's all good things and bad things about it. 
you know, with with everything that everything is new. I mean, what happens with a red dot when when it gets full of mud or or somebody drops their gun? Glass breaks. You know, that's kind of one of those problems. Um, and that's where when I teach red dot classes, we go along and we talk about what do you do when the red dot doesn't work if it mm-hmm. falls off because it's another mechanical piece that you screw onto your gun and there's a possibility that it breaks, falls off, gets mangled, something, and you need to need to have a, some kind of backup way to be able to still use your firearm uh, to right. defend yourself. Right. Uh, and then you go along. You know, one thing that's really big, you know, from law enforcement standpoint, is just the the use of force. You know, what was acceptable 46 years ago when you're stopping somebody is not acceptable these days. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, 20 years ago, we didn't have body cams. Now, right. you know, most police departments have body cams, dash cams, um, all these different kind of pieces to go along, give more visibility about what's going on and hold the, you know, bad police officers accountable, but also at the same time, go along, give the, uh, give the public a insight into what the police are really dealing with. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you're a little, uh, you're, your baby is not behaving very well. And that might be the reason why the police had to use, uh, you know, some additional uh, leverage, additional force in order to get them to comply, to get in the back of a police car, you know, something along those lines. And that's where, you know, body cam can be very good to justify their actions and, and hold that person accountable, or at the same time, be able to review what the police actions are to say what they, you know, could have done better. You know, we've, we've all seen videos of those on the news and, you know, I point out that anybody who likes to go along and jump up and down on top of cops is to go along and say, you know, 99% of all the cops and the videos uh, from cops, there's nothing amazing about them all. It's just run of the mill. It's that 1% that people jump on top of and all of a sudden want to condemn all the cops for. And that's just not the way things work. Right. Yeah. Our program of transparency has certainly changed from the 1990s to now. We used to have citizen police academies to try to inform people what police work is about. Uh, didn't really get a big turnout, but we always had some full classes, but it really mm-hmm. couldn't offer that many classes. And now you got the videos and you got all kinds of other stuff, body cams, which will you know, try to the public get their own perspective about law enforcement. It's just like watching movies. I, I can remember many times people would tell me, well, I know what you're doing because I watch cops on Saturdays, you know, <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that that's one of the things that uh i'm glad to say that the law enforcement's got to deal with it too because I, one of the things my instructors say that they quote me on all the time is i tell them that one of the biggest challenges about teaching civilians is when you go along probably about 80 90 percent of what, what a civilian really thinks about when it comes to concealed carry a firearm different things like that is wrong because they saw it on the movies right. and the movies are wrong uh about things that you know you can't do a john wick move and swing your pistol to make the bullet goes go around a corner it just right. you know physics doesn't allow it but i've had people go along and swear that they can make it do it and I don't let them do it because I know it's not going to work and it's dangerous to be swinging a gun like that across uh, on a range. But, you know, again, people think that what they see in the movies is real. Yeah. Well, my transition from training police to uh, training civilians is a a whole complete turnaround. Uh, When you're a range officer at the police department, most most of the time you really don't get to train anybody. What you're doing is just uh, recording scores for their annual qualification. 
so they can continue working and continue carrying their gun on duty. Mm-hmm. When I got started teaching civilians, we had to become real instructors then because we get a person looking at a gun like it's a snake in a box and you got to train them so that they can use it and be proficient and, and be able to be use it with confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's a responsibility for that yeah. person when they're carrying it that they can confidently and safely carry it in public for uh to protect the public, you know, from any accidental uh, discharges or handling the firearm, but also at the same time, there's a bigger need for them to know when and where to use it properly because their life or their family's life might depend on how they handle and use that firearm. And if they can't hit the broadside of a barn after going through somebody's class, then you're setting them up for failure. And that's uh, not, not something I would like my students to have to face. Right. Like in the state of Illinois, uh, all it takes is 16 hours of training, whether you attend a USCCA class or NRA pistol class, become a a concealed carry instructor. I've known some instructors never been to court for a traffic ticket, but they're going to teach somebody about uh, use of force and how to deal with this in court and the aftermath of a shooting, but never experience it themselves. They only watch videos and then try to uh, transfer that information to the class. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, only watching or, you know, only getting one side of a, you know, of the process and such, uh, we've, we've had Don West on from CCW safe before, and he went along and and went through the entire trial process, pre-trial and the trial process. And, you know, he's a trial lawyer and I was still kind of in awe listening to him describe all this, that it doesn't go as quickly as you want it to. There's all these different motions that can be made, all these different, you know, challenges and and charges that can be brought up or dropped. And all that I can be thinking in the back of my mind is that's the kind of guy that I'd want on my side that would understand all that stuff, because that's just, it's way over my pay grade for what, for understanding all all the legal ins and outs there. Right. Yeah. He was the one who represented Zimmerman in uh, Florida. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very, very, uh, very experienced, uh, trial lawyer, uh, yeah. in self-defense cases and such, uh, you know, everybody knows him from the Zimmerman case, but he also did qu- uh, quite a bit of, uh, other self-defense, uh, work for law enforcement and such. So it's, uh, yeah, very, uh, very, very informative. That's where, you know, for instructors who are listening and thinking, okay, how do I ever get that kind of experience? It's pretty, you know, the point comes down to just don't take one course, take multiple right. courses. Um, you know, I've sat through several seminars by Andrew Bronca. Um, you know, I've talked to, um, you know, I've talked talk to Don West, I've talked to other uh, legal. I've also gone along and watched and looked at uh, videos to kind of understand what the nuances are. Um, John Korea from Active Self Protection, uh, yeah. he's a great resource. Uh, for those kind of things, because as he's going along and looking at those, you got a video, you can see what he's seeing and get all those little nuances because most of the time the devil's in the details with all those, all those types of uh, situations for it. Yeah. I use some of his videos and not training classes also. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I get a lot of calls when there are self-defense cases around my city. And one of the ones that recently came up was there was a smoke shop who uh, owner went, went along, shot the burglar that came in uh, to a smoke shop, try to uh, 
try to rob him, but then he was charged after the case and everybody was calling me up about, you know, why was he charged? And I said, well, the devil's in the details. So I went along and looked at it. The guy didn't get charged for shooting him. He got charged because he was a felon, uh, and he was in possession of a firearm. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where it doesn't have anything to do with the self-defense. He was allowed to do the self-defense. It comes down to that. He wasn't supposed to have a firearm you know, in the shop with them all the time. And that's where, yes, you, you can still get in trouble. Even when you go along and defend yourself, if you uh, make those kind of errors and judgments. Right. Right. But I also see a, a problem of how, if you don't have the experience, how do you train somebody about the aftermath of a shooting PTSD mm-hmm. like that? And I've been involved in a shootings myself. And I, actually, I saved some of the videos of the, the uh, audio recording of the me screaming for help on the radio and stuff like that. And how do you deal with that later with someone, you know, that has no experience in it and somebody quit? I was involved in shooting. What do I do next? If you never did that or you don't have the experience in it, it's hard, very hard to give accurate information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the most moving um interviews I've had on this podcast and I've actually, uh, had him call into one of my, uh, concealed carry classes one time was Thomas Yoxall down in Arizona. And mm-hmm. he saved a state trooper's life who was uh, getting beat, uh, to, to death on the side of the road. The yeah. only thing about it is that you go along and, and going through the back of your mind that really in my mind, like, wow, this would be really tough was he went along and as he shot the perpetrator and saved the state trooper's life, all his backup was starting to arrive. And there he is holding a gun. There's a state trooper who's shot. There's one person who's dead. They found a lady who was dead also. And it looked really, really, really bad. And that's where uh, him calling into my CCW class and letting people know that what he did, what he went through and, you know, just his mental state was you know, very, was very surreal because mm-hmm. you realize that at any moment there, something bad could have happened and, you know, he played it right and things worked out very well for him. But at the same time, you, we all want to be good people, but at the same time, it's 4 a.m. in the morning on a dark expressway out in the middle of Arizona. And like I said, state trooper shot two people dead and he's the only one holding a gun. That's, a, that's, that, that's a really bad situation when you've got, right. you know, cop cars approaching from every single angle. Right. I can relate to that. I, I, re, I retired from Chicago Heights in 2008, but two years ago, someone tried to carjack my son and driving his Mustang and I'm holding a guy. I called him and call, holding a guy at gunpoint while the police are arriving. Now I've been going from that department a lot long time, so you know the the, uh, the turnover per, uh, uh, personnel that's mm-hmm. going to respond to this call might not know me while I'm standing there holding a gun, and someone called for help. You know, so I had that fear too. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's uh, that's one of the things where uh, uh, anytime I talk about um, you know, legal use of force, also make sure people realize that when the police show up. They're assessing the entire situation and people holding weapons, knives, guns, clubs are their primary, um, targets, you know, from the standpoint of they're going to disarm those people before they worry about anything else. 
And that, that includes somebody who was wounded on the ground because they're not going to turn their back on somebody with a club or somebody with a knife or somebody with a gun. They're going to disarm them, handcuff them, do those kind of things to make the scene safe. And that's something you got to realize that, yeah, you might be the good guy, but you've got to go along and, uh, you know, wait, wait your turn to prove, uh, that you're the good guy and they got to go along and make sure everything's safe for themselves because it, a cop firefighter, any emergency services, they don't want to become a, uh, uh, a hindrance to the entire situation. That's why firefighters don't go running into burning buildings without their equipment. The same thing, fire, uh, police go in and they make sure everything's safe before they worry about, uh, you know, taking care of the wounded or anything else like that. Sounds cruel, but when you think about it, you don't want more wounded. You want to go, be able to go along and uh, get that wounded person out there as quickly as possible and not add to it. Absolutely. Uh, well, Brian, what are some of the things that you've done to get qualified besides your 46 years in law enforcement? Are there specific things that you you would say that, you know, really helped take you out of that rookie stage to where you kind of more understood how things worked? Well, I was at a conference in 1990. Well, I became a firearms instructor in 1986 uh, with the NRA. And, uh, you know, so I worked with the regular police department as a range officer, but like I was a new guy, tell sit down, shut up. I was at a uh, Justice System Training Association conference in San Diego. I met a man named Andrew Cassavan. I don't know if you, if you know him. He attended a lot of the different uh, conferences also. And he was telling me about he had a new place in Illinois called the Mid uh, Midwest Tactical Training Institute. I went out there and, and trained with him. That's where I really learned how to become an instructor. He taught me so much. And so uh, I, I attended my first SWAT class with him also. But he taught me about how to use all the different weapons that, that are available on the market now. Uh, one time I'm at a conference and I seen him. I walked in his class and sat in on his uh, breakout session. And he came up to me and he said, talking with you in the class is like preaching to the choir. I said, well, keep preaching because I'm still listening because I learned a lot from him. And, and we still keep in contact today. Uh, from there, uh, just, just the different conferences where I had an opportunity to meet with different people, to uh, get ideas of how to become a better instructor. Uh, and, and I, I got a whole uh, toolbox of information I collect at every conference. When I go to the conference, I actually go to the classes and try to see what I can gain to, uh, to use for something else. I, I, pr I produce a lot of videos also, and I write the articles. But the thing is, I, I, uh, I, I can humble myself and go sit in on somebody else's class and learn what I can from, the, from that person. And I always leave every class with something that I can use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, conferences and such, I try to get out and, uh, and take classes, uh, meet, meet different people, uh, network as much as you can, because you never know when you might have a question may, and may look at something that's a little bit different. And that's where, you know, taking a, taking a pistol shooting course might sound really mundane and, and, uh, unnecessary, but if you take it from somebody who's got a unique way of doing something, you might learn something that you can take and apply to yourself or maybe to your students. And that's right. one of those things where that becomes very, um, very interesting because especially in the civilian world, there is multiple ways to skin the cat. 
and you know how do you how do you grip the firearm how do you go along and align the sights and do do those types of things because uh in the civilian world you've got different people with different um grip strength different arm strength uh eyesights all those different kind of things you need to take in consideration uh when you're trying to coach them versus you know if you're in law enforcement you know they've passed the physical they've got to be you know they got to be able to do so much in a certain amount of time just to stay on the force and you can be guaranteed but when it comes to civilian you've got a you know 60 year old woman uh she may have great eyesights but guess what she might not have the strength and strength or you might have a 70 year old guy that doesn't have the eyesight but uh you know you need to go you know how do you go along and help them through it um i can say just from my aging my um my firearms that you the sights i used to be able to see in low light really difficult to see now i've got to paint them and I went to fiber optic sites and then now I'm onto the red dot sites. And that's mm-hmm. where, where you, you move depending upon where you are. And I'm better able to help those older shooters or shooters with uh, aging eyes to be able to shoot red dots better now, because I've gone through that. I've got, I've got the experience to share with them. Yeah. And, and the thing is I've taught many of the classes injured myself. So Thing is, we don't mind letting a person that's older at the, want to do the, the whole entire class from a chair. We bring chairs out there for them because I understand sometimes you just, just can't endure, you know, all the different physical things that, that's required in the mm-hmm. class. Yeah. And the one thing I always point out to people, you know, when it's like, you know, that person would never be, you know, be able to defend themselves if they're in the middle of a target store. And it's like, yep, you're probably right. But that person's not going to be, you know, running around in a target store. This person who, you know, sitting on a chair at a range is going to be in their house when somebody breaks in and they got to be able to defend themselves pretty much from a chair because that's where they're going to be as they break right. into the front front door. And that's where um, not everybody's not everybody's going to be a marathon runner. Not everybody's going to be able to jump or or do different things. And we've got to meet the students where they are so they can they can be the, the best and the most responsible shooter possible yes yeah and that, see in the in illinois uh, for concealed carry they only require you to shoot 30 rounds that is it and in, in mm-hmm. our class uh the person would have to bring 200 rounds we have a uh, moving and shooting we have a moving target set up and our range is outdoors and so we run from march to uh, november because you know that's when weather is much more uh suitable for us and so uh, we try to make sure that we can train them very similar to the police in one day, mm-hmm. give them some experience, but we encourage them to come back. Now, uh, 2010, I believe it was, we started uh, a, tra- a class just for police wives and it's free. All right. And so we've been doing that for, for since 2010 uh, with, with the uh, NRA, they awarded us the 2012 and 2013 public service award for doing that class. Uh, I don't even know if the ward exists now, but we're not after the ward. We still run this class. Also, we run a class for kids every June to be 12 to 16 years old, and the class is free. To mm-hmm. Make sure these people learn, because the worst thing to have is a gun in the house, and you're the only one to know how to use it. Well, or worse, the kid, a, a kid comes across a gun on the streets. And, yes. you know, and what what do they do? They look down the barrel to see if it's loaded or they yes. grip it and their finger, you know, is on the trigger, all these different kinds of things that send chills up your spine as an instructor. But at the same time, if you don't teach them anything different, then that's what they're going to do because 
How many times have we seen it on Hollywood where somebody goes along, looks at, you know, looks down the barrel to see if it's loaded yes. Yes. or how many times you see, you see on the movies to where they're running around with the fingers on the trigger. Yeah. Yes. I know it's only Hollywood, but kids right. are impressionable and the kids are going to repeat what they see on, you know, on the movies as if that's real life. Yeah. Now I met a guy who, who was the technical advisor for the Miami vice TV series. Mm-hmm. And so sitting around joking and just talking about the different tactics he was using. He said, I'm trying to get paid and they want to see something dramatic. So we, we know that these are not the suitable uh, tactics that, that a police officer will use, but the thing is it looks dramatic and that's what I'm getting paid for. Yep. Uh, the, uh, their shoulder holsters and things like that. They had on in Miami vice there and you go yeah. along and it's like, Oh my gosh, how many times did they muzzle themselves or people behind them doing different right. things like that? Yeah. It looks really cool. But at right. the same time, we know from a responsible uh, firearm user that having you know a shoulder holster where the muzzle's pointing straight out behind you is not a responsible way to you know carry a firearm in, right. at any time. But it looks dramatic on t- on TV. Oh, it looks good. Back in like what 83, I had that same shoulder holster you're talking about because yeah. it was cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> looks cool. You see it on TV, and I thought maybe that's what I should have too. Well, I remember if you go on YouTube, you can go and find some old, uh, police training videos. And I'm thinking of, uh, Oklahoma state police were one of them from mid fifties showed how a police officer should have their finger on the trigger as they're walking around the corner. So in case somebody jumps at them, they can immediately, you know, shoot them. Yes. And there was, there was no consideration about identifying target or going along and making sure you don't have a negligent discharge. It was just, you know, have your finger there just in case. And that's one of those things too, to where, okay, that was from the mid fifties and we don't do anything even remotely close to that, um, anymore, because if you get your finger on the trigger, you have to have, you know, you have to have a target in front of you. Right. Yeah. Plain and simple for it. When we go along, we were talking about rookies. What do you, you have any other suggestions for our listeners about how they can go along and get the experience to become qualified besides just time? Well, reading a lot. Uh, and, and that's what I do. I read a lot. I, man, I look at the videos and stuff like that, but still sitting in a classroom where you can ask questions, you can uh, attend different classes and ask questions, pick the brain of an instructor uh learn the different ways the different i mean whatever you whatever activity out there everyone have their own style of doing it whether it's bowling uh, uh archery throwing darts anything everybody have their own style and so you can learn a lot just from watching other people and i know some people don't have the ego they can't bring down the ego to go sit in on another class and i, mm-hmm. and I think you're doing a detriment to yourself by doing by not doing it yep and something i suggest uh volunteer and i'm saying volunteer as far as being unpaid being an assistant yeah. instructor um because yes. that'll help you learn how to run a range properly because you've got somebody who's skilled and knows what to look for um be an assistant instructor so that you can see how they're describing things and you can kind of pick their brains on how they describe how something yeah how a grip should be how how they should move their feet when you're running between and between uh, cover, uh, all these different ca- kind of uh, pieces that you can pick up from being in somebody's class as an assistant instructor, and then you can grow uh, from that standpoint and really become a excellent instructor who has yeah. the toolkit to be able to go along, not just 
teach it, but who can go along and explain it multiple ways, explain the why, explain what's going on there so that the shooter has the information necessary to make the right decisions at the right time for the right, right reasons. Absolutely. No, well, that's, uh, that's good, Brian, a good conversation. And, uh, just reminder everybody, I'm going to put the article in the show notes that, that Brian wrote and be good to read good to kind of put back your brain as far as, uh, what you should be doing as an instructor to, uh, become qualified, not just and qualification just doesn't happen one time. If you are rifle pistol shotgun, um, moving and shooting, you may, you may be qualified to do certain levels, but you may not be you know, qualified to do, um, other levels of shooting with this, with the same kind of, uh, weapon. And those are things where you have to be honest about, you know, where is my skill level and what do I need to do in order to get up to that next level? So very good. Well, Brian, we've been asking all our guests this year, uh, to tell us what they would like to be remembered for when they pass away. What would you like to be remembered for? Well, I started a martial arts class in 1981. I've had uh, 48 people, kids from that class, become police officers. I, and so the thing is, I'm 70 years old now, but I still run that class because of the fact that of, of the lives that I touch and our, our class is very inexpensive. The things I do in the community, I don't charge for. I think I just try to do it just to, to help people be, learn how to not become victims. And so what I want to be remembered for is what I gave to my community as far as training and, and different ideas and things like that to where they cannot become victims and just being able to be a, a good person. Uh, I, I deal a lot with kids in the community. I deal a lot with old people in the community too. But the thing is, it's, it's not about money for me. I've always been fortunate uh, where I can take care of myself, but uh, it's not always about trying to make a, a buck for me. Mm-hmm. It's all about making the world a better place absolutely yeah and yes i think all of every everybody listening to this can probably identify there's been uh classes where you could make good money and there's been other classes to where you put them on because you knew the people needed it you know you didn't yes. worry about the money you put it on for the for the people because they needed it and that's uh that's making an impact for things yes, so appreciate that brian well where can instructors find more out about you brian and classes that you're teaching and such all right, my website is Metropolitan Police Self-Defense Institute. That's named by a training group. And the website is, itself is mpsdichicago.com. All one word. I have a Facebook, which is Brian C. Smith. Also, we post, post all the articles and videos on. Super. Well, I will put these in the uh, show notes again for those that are driving and want to be able to look up for them. And uh, again, Brian, thank you for your time. Good insight on uh, uh, certification versus qual- being qualified instructor. And look forward to future articles that you uh, will be posting out there. All right. Well, thank you. You have okay. a great day. You too. Bye. All right. That's a wrap for this episode. And I hope everybody listening besides working on getting additional certifications. Also, I hope you work on uh, becoming qualified as best you can. As we talked about being an assistant instructor or taking additional courses so you you can give your students the best training possible. If you're searching for additional information, don't forget to check out our website, the Fireman Trainer Podcast at www.firematrainerpodcast.com.
com, the search bar in the upper right-hand corner. If you have questions, feel free to email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. I also want to ask you, follow us on Facebook or join us for the conversation over on LiveFire and talk about the episodes, talk about what you're seeing, and just be part of the community for it. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com. We bring this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.